we pick up the story in Luke 22 on a Thursday. We've been on Thursday for a while, and now it's around midnight or so. Uh, and this is when they get up from the table. And as they get up from the table, I'm imagining that they put their sandals on and grabbed the cloak and put it on themselves and headed over to the door, opened it, stepped out and went down the stairs from that upper room and began their walk together. That loaned upper room had served its purpose well for them. And now here they come. And it's only now just nine hours according to scripture, before Jesus is going to actually be on the cross. This is where we are for these guys. And as they walked together, they walked alone, and it was just him with the remaining 11. I imagine the night was peaceful and calm, maybe the moon shining, who knows. Uh, And while it's peaceful and calm outside in the middle of the night in Jerusalem, it's anything but peaceful and calm in the hearts of his disciples. And knowing this, sensing this, aware of this, Jesus turns and stops with them. And I'm imagining in a tender, caring voice, says these words, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house, guys, are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. Look, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will be back to take you to be with me. The text from John 14 continues to tell us that Thomas is there, and he asks a question. The text tells us that Philip has a request, and then we read also that Judas, not Judas Iscariot because he had already left them, but the other Judas asks another question to Jesus. And so they continue their walk, and they come to the temple. And it's here that we have a point where Jesus stops. This is found in John 17, where he stops. And I'm imagining these guys that are walking with him, the disciples, the 11, are pondering and wondering about everything that he's prayed and shared with them, of why he's stopping now at the temple. And as they look at him, and they're kind of gathered around, kind of not sure what's going to unfold next, they see Jesus look to heaven. That's what the scripture says. And they hear these words in his prayer. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. The 11 are standing there, and they're hearing Jesus pray, and they realize he's praying for himself at this point. The prayer continues on. And then they heard, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. And they kind of look at each other, I imagine, and, and, and it dawns on them. He just prayed for us. And then the prayer continues in John 17. Finally, they heard, I pray also for those who will believe in me. The disciples heard Jesus pray for future believers like you and like me. On this very night, hours before he's going to the cross. While 11 of them were still processing everything he had said and prayed, I'm imagining at this point they walk out from the temple and start to head towards the gate and off the cobblestone and now into the dirt path. See, the dirt path was one they'd taken with him many times the past three years in Jesus' life. 
This is a place that they had gone, the path that they had, had, had walked on many times with him. And it would take them down into what's known as the Kindred Valley. And as they proceed down into the Kindred Valley, which means the valley of darkness, the valley of gloom. I don't know, it seems to me at that point, at that night, and knowing what's happening, that maybe that took on new meaning for this trip down into this valley underneath the stars and understanding what was about to unfold for Jesus. With that in mind, I wonder, I wonder how that worked for them. I imagine they also smelled something. I imagine that they smelled actually the remnant of blood. You see, what we understand in Jewish history and what we understand in how things work there is that Passover had just happened, which meant all the sacrificial lambs that had been slaughtered there in the temple. And I know it's gross, but the blood's got to flow somewhere. And as it flows out of the temple down into, you guessed it, the Kindred Valley. And so imagine as they walk there in that valley of gloom, the valley of darkness, and the smell of blood this time, of how they would have been processing that. I imagine that they smell that. I imagine also that Jesus caught that aroma just like them. He's human, after all. As he smells that aroma and catches that, I couldn't help but I wonder if he's moved by the biblical symbolism that the valley held and all of its meaning. He was, after all, the what? The Lamb of God. I wonder how that process that night that he knew that his blood would soon flow to cover all the sins of the world. And so crossing the Kindred Valley was, I, I sense, confirmation to him concerning that cup, that cup that symbolizes that he'd be taken on all the sins of the world, the cup that would symbolize God's judgment for all that sin. And that he would willingly take, if you will, and drink that cup and die for all the sins of the world. That's our setting as we continue this morning in our series of Knowing the Truth About Jesus. And Luke records what happens next. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke 22. We've been in here for a while. Luke 22. Grab your Bible. Turn to Luke 22 to verse 39. We're going to look at verses Luke 22, verses 39 to 46, where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because up out of that valley, that's where they come to, right on the Mount of Olives, is this garden. Luke writes it this way in his account. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat, it was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from the prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. We're going to sit on this passage here this morning and process through what's going on. It's a well-known story 
It's a story that's also recorded in Matthew's account and Luke's account, or in Mark's account. So we got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each of them is kind of, I envision it kind of like a, 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 like you're filming a scene and there's a character in the scene and you have multiple characters. And each of them has the view of the same scene, but it's a different vantage point, different perspective. And that's what we get from the three accounts of this story. The story of the final event before Jesus is about to be arrested. Look back at verse 42 in your Bible. It says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed this prayer not once, not twice, but three times. Luke, in his account, only has it the once, but it does say that he prayed again or returned again. Whereas the other gospel accounts have it being prayed out a couple times and then another one saying that he returned again after prayer. So Jesus is praying this. And and what I just want you to pause here just for a moment in noticing this. In mind with the other accounts and here he's praying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. What I want you to see here just for a moment is an important reminder, a very important reminder You see, in our world, as you know and I know, there are a lot of religions out there. There are a lot of belief systems, a lot of uh, ideas and thoughts about how we can get to heaven, how we can get to God. And a lot of people hold to all those views. And, And what I want you to realize here is not once, not twice, but three times, what is Jesus asking for? He's asking for another way, another means, another way to get to the Father, another way to get to heaven. But as you know, and I know, that prayer, thankfully, is not answered. It's not answered. Why? Because it was the Father's will that his son be the sacrificial lamb to cover all the sins of the world. It's why we look in a place like 1 Timothy 2.5 that says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. In other words, our good works, our good deeds, our good intentions, even our good religious practices are not the merit that we need, that we could have, that would allow us to get into heaven. And yet a lot of people in this world, sometimes even believers think, I've got to do something extra to make sure I'm in. And yet I go back to this and I go, wait a minute, what is Jesus praying here? He's praying and asking for there to be another way. And yet we know from what we read in Scripture that Jesus, he said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him and him alone. So just keep that in mind here, that prayer is a small uh, side note here, what he's praying and why he's praying and the significance of that. And so knowing what awaited him, only Dr. Luke's account records how unimaginably stressed Jesus is at this moment. Look back in verse 43. We read that an angel from heaven appeared to him, appeared to Christ, to strengthen him. 
Why, why, why is he there? Why does this angel show up to strengthen him? Verse 44 gives us a clue. And being in anguish, you might have agony in your translation. He prayed, Jesus prayed more earnestly. And as he's praying, here's what Luke describes. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. If you interpret this literally, as some do, some scholars interpret it literally, that he literally sweat drops of blood. That's a condition known as hematidrosis, which under great stress, the way our body is made, is that actually uh, cells or, or, or vessels in your, in your head can actually rupture under this amount of stress that as you sweat, it actually blood finds its way out with that together. If you are in the camp that says, well, let me just interpret that uh, figuratively, because Luke says it was like that. The, the point is, is he is stressed beyond measure, beyond anything we could comprehend is the stress level that is before Jesus in this moment for him. And I thought to myself, well, why is he stressed? Why is this such a, a big deal for Jesus to continually ask for there to be another way? And you start processing it through, well, was it because of the crucifixion he was going to endure, the, the beating he would take, the beard being plucked, people hitting him and saying, who hit you? Prophesy to us and tell us. But was it that he was being put on a cross and nailed there and hung so that as he's hanging to breathe, he has to push off the nail to get a breath? Is that the stress that's there for him? Certainly, I would think that that's definitely part of his stress and why he's asking for another way. Or, or was it because of the cup, which again symbolizes all the sins of the world and God's wrath, God's judgment upon that, that Jesus was about to take, if you will, and drink and die? Was that the stress that was working through Jesus at this moment? I would say probably so, yeah. But I want to submit to you, I think the greater stress for Jesus and why he was asking for another way was because of this. Most of all, it was because his father would need to break fellowship with his son. For a moment of time, the father would have to turn his back on his beloved son. Since God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have no beginning Imagine this event coming now where the father is going to break fellowship with his son because of the sin, the cup that he's taking, the wrath that he's going to put on his son. I want to submit to you that perhaps that's, that's what Jesus is stressed about most because this is the first time ever, 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 ever that this is going to happen to him. The crucifixion, stressful. The cup, stressful. But being without my dad, my Abba Father, in this moment of greatest anguish and agony, when I am put upon that cross, I might be praying too to take this cup from me. He's stressed like blood flowing out. So the setting here in the Garden of Gethsemane 
starts the clock of the final nine hours of Jesus' life before the cross. I want to submit to you it's the greatest trial Jesus has ever faced. It's probably, arguably, the greatest trial anyone has ever faced. I was trying to process through how great this trial was, how great the stress was, and I, I, I came up with a couple ideas. You could come up with your own, but I thought, what would it be like if you're a pilot and you've got a plane full of 300 people and your engines are out and you've got to make an emergency landing? How great the stress, the trial of that would be. Or, or maybe you're in the waiting room and you've had to have emergency sur- on surgery on some loved one and you're sitting there waiting to see, did they make it through? Did they pull through? Are they still alive? And what great a trial that would be and the stress you would be feeling at that moment. Or maybe it's a financial crisis that comes and is unexpected and unplanned for. And you're thinking, what are we gonna do? Maybe it's for some of you who have lost a loved one. How are you gonna get through that? How are you going to process through that, the stress, the trial of that? Whatever it is, I just want to submit to you that what Jesus is processing through is a great, great trial. You can name whatever your trial is. In fact, today, you may be going through a trial right now. And for you, it's the greatest trial ever in your life. That's where you are today. And if you put it this way, you're feeling it. You're feeling that. Or, or maybe you've just come out of a great trial and you're thinking, man, I am glad I'm over that. Or, or maybe there's a trial that is awaiting you around the corner in life. Whatever the greatest trial is for you or you could think back or what might be coming, there's one thing I submit to you that I believe you will be doing at a given point in that trial because the stress will be so great. It is that you will begin to want to pray. You will want to talk to your heavenly father to work through what you're going through. That's what we see Jesus doing with his father. It's the right. We're made to be relational. We're made to be in relationship with our father. So this morning, what I want to do is present three questions to you. The first question is, how can we prepare for trials? The Bible indicates that they're coming. Secondly, why is it important to be prepared? And then thirdly, how do we pray our way through trials? So the first question is, how can you prepare yourself for trials? Let me give you a clear answer. One answer, and it's this. Make personal time with God the norm, not the exception. Make a time that you spend with God personally in his word, praying the norm of your life, not the exception. Why do I bring this out? Look back at verse 39 of Luke 22. It says that Jesus went out as usual, or you might have in your translation, as was his custom to go to the Mount of Olives, the place that he liked to go to pray. You might have a place you like to go get away and pray. The Mount of Olives was Jesus's place. And the Garden of Gethsemane was another place there at the Mount of Olives where he went But notice that it says it's as usual, as was his custom. In other words, this wasn't the exception that they're going to take this journey up to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the norm. Because this isn't the first trial Jesus has faced, but it's the greatest one with the cross before him. So it's normal. It's it's his custom that he's going there. 
In other words, personal time with his father was the norm for Jesus, not the exception. You might find in your bulletin a sheet that looks like this. You might be seeing where I'm going with this in personal time with God. I subscribe to the email version of this because I'm a little bit more lazy than having to go find this and dig it out. And Matt puts the verses for that day, which we're going through Isaiah right now, right there in front of me. He has links in the email. I can click on an extra verse he wants me to read, and it takes me to Bible Gateway, and I read it. Because that's to be the norm for us. Because we don't know what's happening, what's coming down the road. And even if you do know, you want to be prepared for that, like you're going on a trip, right? So we offer personal time with God as to be the norm for us, not the exception. It's to be the norm for us that we're in God's word. So it's there for us for the taking. You might have other devotions that you go through like I do, other apps you use on your phone like I do to bring up a a verse of the day or a Bible promise. But that should be the norm. Because if you're here today, and, and maybe there's no stressful trial that you're facing, praise God, right? Amen. Something to be thankful for this week as we head into Thanksgiving. But as my dad said when I would get into the car every time, buckle up. (laughs) Buckle up, because this is what Scripture says in James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when, bold, caps lock, you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There's a purpose for it, right? We see that there, and that's why we can consider it joy. But the, the word there is when, not if. Right? We understand this from if we look at life with my little kids, which trying to explain to them, like, no, it's not if, it's just a matter of when you're going to have some challenges in life, when you're going to have a trial, when there's going to be something that doesn't go your way. So that's what we see here as life is the norm. We need to make personal time with God the norm, not the exception. That's how helps us prepare for trials. And why is this important? Why is it important to make personal time with God the norm, not the exception? Let me give you two reasons. One, because you need, you need to be wise. You need to be wise as they come. Jesus saw the wisdom in having personal time with God, with his Father, because he knew trials in life were coming continually throughout his life. I love the story that Jesus used in Matthew 7. When he put it this way about the trials coming. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that's listening to God's word, personal time with God, is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house like a great trial. Putting stress on that house. And yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had the foundation on the rock. It was prepared. Friends, you're going to be facing trials. You know this. God wants us to be prepared for them like the storm that's coming. So we need to be wise. That's why we need to have a personal time with God as a norm. Here's the second reason. Because you need to have hope. You need to have hope when you face the trial, when you face the circumstance, the challenge. Because trials can be very discouraging, can't they? Trials can be very difficult to process through, especially if they seem insurmountable to overcome. And they continue to linger on and on and on and on. 
God desires to work in you and through your trials if, that's the condition, you will let him. If you will let him. How does this work? How does he work? What is the role that I can play in this? Well, in, in, in 1 Peter 5, 6 to 10, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, lift you up in that trial, lift you up in that circumstance, because you should cast all your anxiety, your cares, your trials, your stress on him, because he cares for you. And it continues on and talks about how the enemy seeks to destroy us like a roaring lion. And it reminds us this way too. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the brothers throughout the world, oh, they're going through trials as well. They're undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, if you follow this, if you make this the norm, you're wise to this. And it says the God of all grace who called you in his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while in this lifetime will himself restore you and make you strong and make you firm and make you steadfast. That's what God promises. This is how we can have hope. Why is it important to make personal time with God the norm, not the exception? Because you want to be wise and prepared. You want to have hope. Think of it this way. Let me use an analogy that I'm processing through of how valuable this is and not just a thing you write in on your notes. So let's say after the service, you came up to me and said, Bill, you're a car guy. You went to a race six years ago on your birthday, so you must have something that you like about cars. I said, yes, I do. Well, I've got a car problem. Okay. Can you come out and look at my car? And I said, Okay. Mind you, I'm not a mechanic. My brother-in-law is a professor of auto mechanics. He's the one you really want, but he's not here today. He's like, well, I'm taking you. You come out here. Pop the the hood, and you look at the engine and say, well, what can you see? What do you think the problem is? I'm like, well, I don't, I don't. Well, just look. Figure out something, anything, okay? And let's just say I decided to go to you where your air filter is for your combustible engine, and I pulled the cover off, and I go, hey, where's your, where's your air filter? And you were like, oh, is that necessary? Uh, yeah, well, why is it necessary? Well, how many miles has it been going since you think that you haven't used this? Hmm, quite a while. Like, well, how many? Give me a guess. Maybe 15,000 miles? Okay. You didn't notice it at 5,000, did you? No. 800? No. 10,000? No, I don't think so. Well, what's happening is because you don't have a filter, guess what's happening? All that your engine is breathing in is all the dust and particles that are out there. And guess where they've gone? They've gone into your cylinder heads, and there's rings on there, according to my brother-in-law, and that gets in, and what that disrupts is the ability for them to have the proper function of that engine. Hence why you have me out here looking at your car trying to figure out why is it not running? You haven't filtered out what you're supposed to be to make it function properly. In the same way or in the like way, imagine you going through your life without the filter of a personal time with God. In other words, you thought it was wise to run without that. You thought you had enough hope in all your possessions that I'm good to go. 
Yeah, you can go days, weeks, months, maybe even years without a regular personal time with God. But eventually, the way your car is designed, the way God has designed us, it's going to start hindering your ability to propel yourself the way you're supposed to be able to propel yourself down the road of life. You've got to address that. So this is a reminder to us what Jesus has shown us here. How can I prepare for trials? I got to make personal time with God the norm, not the exception. Why? Because it's wise to be firm and ready for it, to, to have hope, regardless of whatever you encounter as you drive down the road. And so as you make personal time with God the norm, and then at some point a trial comes into your life, the next question of the day, the final question of the day is, well, then how should you pray your way through trials when they come? And the answer is, pray like Jesus did. How do you make your way? How should you pray your way through trials? Pray like Jesus is. He gives us five examples here of how he did this. Lessons for us today. Number one, when you pray, pray humbly. When you pray, pray humbly. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. So he's saying, here's my request, yet not my will, yours be done. A humble response to the will of his father. Verse 41, if you look at that, it says that he knelt down. He knelt down. You know what the custom of the day was, according to what scholars have have shared and what I've learned? Is that most of the time you stood and prayed. If you go to, on a trip to Israel, and you go to the Wailing Wall there in Jerusalem, you'll see the majority, if not all, everyone standing at the wall. And so what we see here, if you're standing is the norm and you're kneeling, that ought to just signal to us like, oh, that's what kind of trial this is. That's what kind of stress you're feeling. And in humility, you're on your knees at this point. Again, praying humbly. It makes sense because in Matthew 16, Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Psalm 147, 6, the author writes, the Lord sustains the humble through their trial, but casts the wicked to the ground. In James 4.10, James instructs us to humble yourselves before the Lord. And, 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 and he will lift you up. Up through that trial to survive it, to get through it, to encounter and deal with the stress, the challenges that come that way. Pray humbly. That's how we should pray through trials. Here's a second example that Jesus set for us. When you pray, pray honestly. Pray honestly. In other words, look at verse 42. Jesus says, take, or you might have in your translation, remove this cup from me. Jesus is is putting this out here and saying, look, I do not want to take this cup, Father. Please remove this cup from me. He's just being open and honest and transparent. He's laying it out there. I mean, if you think about it, if you process it through, God knows all things about you according to what Scripture tells us that God is omniscient. He knows all things. So the test for you, the test for me is, will you be honest to God about what you both already know? 
given that trial, given that circumstance, given that challenge that is before you, will you pray honestly? I look at scripture and I find examples of people who were pretty honest with God when they prayed. I mean, if you look at Job, listen to his honesty when he prays. In Job 10, verses 2 and 3, I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Job, why don't you tell us how you really feel? Let me, I will. Let me continue on. Verses 18 to 22 in Job 10. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? <laughs> I wish I had died before any eyes saw me. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Are not my few days almost over? I hope so. Turning away from me so I can have a moment of joy. Wow. Before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom, the deep shadow, the land of deeper night, of deeper shadow and disorder where even the light is like darkness. Joe, why don't you tell us how you really feel? And we know as we go around scripture, God comes to him and says, brace yourself like a man because he's questioning God. But I'm going to submit to you in his prayer, there's an honesty that's there. He's just saying, God, this is how I feel today. This is what I'm wrestling with. Help me through this. Jesus is being honest and saying, man, take this cup from me. Remove this from me. I'm just laying it out. to. I'm not sugarcoating it. So here we have an example of how to pray through trials. We're praying like Jesus said. You pray, pray humbly. When you pray, pray honestly. And when you pray, thirdly, pray persistently. Pray persistently. Verse 42 is the prayer. And it says in verse 44, he prayed more earnestly or more fervently. That's Luke's way of saying he prayed again and again. If you look in Matthew 26, 39, 42, and 44, you have those prayers being listed out. Mark records it as well in Mark 14, 36, 39, and 41. That Jesus prayed persistently three times. Jesus was persistent with his prayers through trials. An analogy that came to my mind just to help me kind of maybe grasp what we're up against sometimes in trials and praying persistently through them is something we can learn from a, some creation that God has. It's about this tall, has a couple wings on it, but it's got a really strong beak. It's known as the woodpecker. If you think about it, when that woodpecker goes to the tree and it's there, I'm thinking, man, you've got a huge trial in front of you, isn't it? And doesn't it feel like that way sometimes? Like, how are you ever going to get through this? You can pound all day. You can be as persistent as you want. But, but don't you see how, like, this is massive. And yet, if you've been out in the wild and you're that, right? Like, man, you're going all day long. Here you are another day. Weeks have gone by. Months have gone by. Like, why do you continue to do that? I'm sure the woodpecker will go, well, look at all the holes that I've put in through the trees, right? And you go, oh, a woodpecker's been there. We have no doubt what's been there. And I want to submit to you, maybe we could take a lesson from one of God's creatures that goes, man, what if I was that persistent to punch through, if you will, the trial that I'm going through at this point? It's massive, but all I'm here is right now. 
Jesus' prayer is not praying for everything at this point. He's just praying, God, help me take this cup from me. And he's praying over and over and over again. And maybe that's where the trial is for you. You've got to go, man, I just need to pray this again and again and again. Being persistent through prayer. Two more of how we should pray through trials. This begins to transition vertically to a little bit more horizontally. What do I mean? Number four, when we pray, be transparent with your closest friends. Be transparent with your closest friends. Think of it this way. What if Jesus was asked by Peter, James, or John in the Garden of Gethsemane, how are you doing, Jesus? And Jesus' response was, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm fine. Yet I wonder how many times that maybe I've been asked, you've been asked, in the midst of a difficult trial, difficult day, someone asks you, how are you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm fine. No, we're not. What I see here with Jesus is saying, I am not fine. I am struggling here. And he's being transparent with his disciples, asking them to pray for him and pray with him. Look at, 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 at uh, uh, well, I'll just read it to you because it's outside the other accounts here in Matthew um, and Mark's account. What we have here is, is, is this picture in Matthew 26, uh, in verses 37 to 30, 38, it goes like this. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's being transparent with your best friends, with your close friends. Watch and pray. In Mark 14, 34, it says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, Stay here and keep watch. He's transparent with his closest friends in the midst of this most difficult trial. But what if you are here today and you go, Well, I don't know that I really have close friends. My closest friends have passed away, my closest friends have moved away. My closest friends are in a care center and I don't get to see them like I used to. And I would just say I'm sorry on that. I would also say and encourage you to be in a life group because that's where friendships get formed. I know in the time I've been here at this church the last couple of years, I've listened to some of your friendships and I've determined that they were formed as a result of being in a life group. You know where else they're formed? They're formed when you're serving in a ministry, when you're serving Jesus together. I can tell you that a few of my closest friends today are because I was in a Bible study with them or praying with them or serving Jesus with them. And so I would just say, well, I don't have the close friends that I used to have. I would just say, well, man, are you in the life group? Are you serving in some capacity? Because I've found, I've seen over and over again that friendships are formed through those. Lastly, how should you pray your way through trials? You pray like Jesus did. Number five, when you pray, give specific prayer requests to your closest friends. Give specific prayer requests to your closest friends. We see in verse 40, he prays and says, on reaching the place to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. As opposed to just saying, hey, would you just pray? 
No, he's specific. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Further along in verse 46, when he comes back after a third time of praying and, and they're falling asleep, he says, get up and pray so that you not fall into temptation. Again, a specific requir- prayer request that he's asked his disciples to pray. Watch and pray. Why? Because temptation, that's your trial. That's going to stress you at this moment. You need to be praying. So Jesus was specific with his prayer requests, and the question that comes for us is, are we that way? When, 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 when you ask somebody to pray for you, do you just say, hey, just pray for me? Or do you say, Bob, I've got a, a, an appointment with my doctor. I'm actually having minor surgery, outpatient surgery, on Thursday at 10 a.m. Bob, would you pray that the doctor would have wisdom as he does the surgery? And Joe, would you pray that the healing would go well? There wouldn't be any infection that sets in? That's what I'm talking about. It's being specific. That's what Jesus is doing here because that's the potential of the trial right there. That's where the stress can come from. Let me close with this as a reminder. If I look at this and I take away something, I say that life is better together. That's a reminder for all of us. Life is better together. Together between you and God, when you make personal time with him, the norm rather than the exception because it helps you to be wise and it helps you to have hope. Better together when you are sharing, being transparent and specific with your prayer requests with those around you. It's why in Ecclesiastes 4, it says, two are better than one because they can have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. And it goes on as a reminder that life is better together. Think of this final thought this way. Uh, years ago when I was in high school, I went to go visit my brother. And I remember outside of their little apartment that they lived in, he had this little tiny little grill. It was about this big. But he had a coffee can. And that's where he put the briquettes. Remember briquettes and cooking on briquettes before the gas barbecue grill came along? And he put those in there, and I said, what do, what's this for? He says, because it's the way you got to get them to stay lit and to actually work. If you spread them out too far, they're not going to stay lit. They're not going to work. And sure enough, as he kind of put those in there and shuffle them around a little bit, shuffle them around a little bit, 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, whatever it was, as opposed to going on to your gas grill, we're ready in two minutes, right? Pull that off, spread those out. And as long as those stayed together, they worked. And you could cook your food. I want to submit to you this thought. If you are facing a trial alone, and by that I mean personal time with God is not the norm. Having others and sharing and praying about that and praying with others is not part of that. Then like a briquette that gets pushed off to the side on its own, you're going to risk burning out through that trial. However, in contrast, if you face a trial together, in other words, you're prepared as you are in personal time with God as the norm. Because you're wised up to that. You are finding that there's hope. And you're following these guidelines of praying humbly, praying honestly, being transparent and being persistent. Then through those trials... I want to submit to you that you'll be prepared, most prepared to experience victory and rejoicing as you come through the other side, which is what we see that Jesus did for us.